happy. You know, a lot of people desire things that don't fulfill them. Absolutely true. There's only one thing that truly can fulfill us. We'll talk about that and more. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Him. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV, taking you through the Bible. It is good to have you here with us today as we learn what God is speaking to us. Now, Corey is here with Ryan, Corey. I'm continuing to look at different industries from ancient Israel. Today, we're looking at copper. Ryan? Well, I think it's time for a reality check and the preacher of Ecclesiastes is gonna help us with that. All right, very good, look forward to that. Janice, what did you do today? Made and designed for duty. Oh, made and designed for duty, MAD, M-A-D-D. That is excellent. We should do Mad Friday. Anyway, uh, all that and more is good. Get your Bible guide out and turn to the world best-selling book. It's God speaking to us. And let's read what he tells us today. Ecclesiastes 6, verses 1 through 6. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction." If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he, for it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness. Does not all go to one place? Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Ecclesiastes 4, 5, and 6 is what we read as we go through the Bible in one year. It's very exciting, you know, as we read God's Word and listen to what He's saying. Now, many who have much seek to have more, more than they need. And some who are wealthy have difficulty giving money to those who really have need. Quite often, giving is done with the requirement that the person doing the giving will get something back in return. The problem is that it's not really giving. Now, Jesus told us that we need to give what little we do have to help others around us. So how much more must we give when we have more than we need? Well, Paul talks to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and tells us that the love of money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Well, in today's world, there are many who have much, but refuse to give any of it away. Solomon was the wealthiest king in Israel's history, and he says all of this is vanity. It is empty and meaningless vapor. Yet Jesus Christ taught us what really means or what it really means to give. 
give your life, give who you are. And this becomes very important as we read this today and we begin to focus on giving. We're going to take a look at chapter six, verses one through six. And I've called this living in vanity. So many people are doing that today. When we connect with the Lord and we say, Jesus Christ, come into my life and help me, then what happens is God begins to help us and the Lord begins to pour into us his Holy Spirit. And then we begin to do things according to his Holy Spirit that literally change our world. That's very important. Take your Bible guys out and turn to the page today. And if you don't have a Bible guide, call us or write to us. We'll send you one. Or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com and you can click on the page. It'll take you to a page of Donate. Let me say, thank you so much for your donations. They're very important. Uh, that, that's how we live around here. That's how we all the cameras are working and the lights go on and all of that stuff. So thank you. Uh, you've been very faithful. and We really, really appreciate that in these times. And then it takes you to a page you can download the PDF files. So, you know, you can have exactly what we printed on your screen and be seconds away from joining us. Let's pray. Father, today we're going to be looking at living in vanity. Help us as we study chapter six, verses one through six, to know the truth about what it means to live rightly. Help us, Lord, not to focus on all these little things we do, but help us to focus on what it means to be a person who understands who God is. In Jesus' wonderful name, this is what we ask and we said together, amen. Now, let's go to the scripture because this is interesting. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself, nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity and it is an evil affliction. <laughs> I want to tell you something that evil is described here as a desire in things which cannot fulfill pretty much everything which cannot fulfill. God says that knowing him is the only way to fulfill our desires. Beloved, listen to what the Bible tells us. When we come to Jesus Christ and when we come to the Lord, he tells us, I will fill your needs. Now, we, we interpret our needs as, yeah, well, I need to pay this and pay that, but, but just listen for a minute. That'll be fine, but that's just the surface. Our needs come later in life when we begin to ask questions like, is this all there is? Is this why I'm living? Why am I existing? God answers those questions. And when we come to God, he speaks to us. And then what he does is fill us with the reality of who he is. And we then begin to understand who we are and that we live forever, for eternity beloved. That's very important to remember. As Christians, we have accessed the free will of God. Then we read his word to understand it. Now, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and we'll learn more. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, 
but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he, a stillborn. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. I want to tell you something. This is fascinating. Darkness comes from inside our soul. The Lord Jesus Christ gives us his light. See, God describes himself as light. There is a difference between light and dark. And the darkness in our soul is sin. And sin can be overcome through Jesus Christ, who paid the cost of sin. And so, beloved, we come to Jesus Christ He forgives us of our sin, separates it as far as the east is from the west. That becomes amazing. God helps us. And that's great. And I want to ask you a question. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ today? Answer that question. Interesting, isn't it? We'll talk about that in a minute. Ecclesiastes 6, verses 5 and 6. Though it is not seen or though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness. Do not all things go into one place? (laughs) In other words, he says something very interesting here. He says, it's all going back. Our lives begin here, but do not end. We determine how we love and live in eternity by knowing and following Jesus Christ. Knowing and following Jesus Christ. Now, I asked you a question just a moment ago. Do you know Christ? I didn't ask if you went to church. I didn't ask any of that. Do you know Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is as close as the mention of his name. If you know Jesus Christ, then begin to pray right now. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, listen to me carefully. Come to the Lord and pray. Say, Father, I believe I need help. Forgive me of my sin and help me to understand that you came 2,000 years ago and died on the cross. You allowed us to kill you. We thought we were doing right, but we were doing wrong. But then you rose from the dead three days later. And you gave us forgiveness of our sin. Now we accept you as Lord of our life. Come into my life. Heal me. Separate me from my sin, Lord, because I need you today. So many bad things have happened to me. So many terrible things, Lord. And I need to know that you are the one who can help me out. So help me today in Jesus' wonderful name. And this is what we all prayed together. And we said together, amen and amen. Keep that in mind as we continue. Hi, Rod Hembry. We go through the Bible in one year. It's exciting. It's great. And you can join us by searching Bible Discovery TV on your phone. That's right, on your phone, your iPhone or your Android phone. And when you do so, you'll find the app. You can download the app and watch it anytime you want. Never miss a program right here on Bible Discovery TV. We'll see you there.
Well, as you know, we're soon going to be wrapping up this year's reading through the wisdom literature portion of the Bible. But before we move on into the prophets, I thought that it would be helpful for us to take an overview of these wisdom literature books, in particular, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And I call this segment Reality Check because although Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes often seem to contradict each other, the fact is that when these books are taken together, they form a proper understanding of reality. Check it out. Just as the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, so too the wisdom of God often seems equally foolish to the world. The wisdom presented in Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, for example, can appear downright contradictory. For example, as Pastor Derek J. Brown points out, Although Proverbs offers reassuring, hopeful promises, such as no ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble, the book of Job portrays one of the most righteous of all men, enduring a weight of suffering that exceeds the experience of most men. And Ecclesiastes further complicates the issue by declaring in a despairingly stoic tone that it does not really matter one way or the other. Similarly, the declaration in Proverbs 21.5 that the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty, also appears to not always be true. Job no doubt experienced the fulfillment of this promise since he was a man of great wealth, but it was not his hastiness that brought him to poverty, it was fire from heaven and a situation out of his control. Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, points out that an excess of wealth is nothing more than vanity and striving after the wind, so who cares if you have any or not? Thus, the question at large is if the wisdom of Proverbs is nullified by the raw reality of Job and the pessimism of Ecclesiastes. Actually, although it initially might seem that these books cannot peacefully coexist, in reality, only together can they provide a proper understanding of the real world. Indeed, the reality of Job's suffering and the pessimistic outlook of Ecclesiastes counterbalances the wisdom of Proverbs and adds the ever-important qualification, but it may not happen this way. Because the reality is that for now, we live in an imperfect, fallen state. Of course, some of these dissonances urge us forward to the New Testament, but others are still with us, putting into words the groaning in travail which the New Testament itself accepts as irreducible in the present age. However, the suffering of Job will find its relief and reason in eternal glory, whereas the vain life of Ecclesiastes will, in the end, be swallowed up by eternal life, and all the injustices in the world will be set right by the great judge. In the meantime, how do we as disciples of Christ correctly and appropriately apply the bold and present promises of Proverbs in the light of the raw reality of Job and the unrelenting cynicism of Ecclesiastes? We present each together in full force. In Proverbs, we present the life of wisdom in all its unapologetic glory and blessing, and the rejection of wisdom in all its gloom. In Job, we show our hearers that it is possible that a good and godly man may suffer in this life, and that it may not be a result of his sin. In fact, it may be a result of his righteousness. In Ecclesiastes, we bring our hearers into the world of the man without God and invite them to walk around in his pointless, vain existence in order to show them that without God, life has little or no meaning. 
So our takeaway from this is really important because way too often well-meaning but very ignorant Christians, much like Job's friends, have totally misapplied the word of God and have caused more hurt than healing. For example, consider how a Christian might find it necessary to question the faithfulness of another fellow Christian's parenting when they see that the child that they have living a life that is far away from Christ and biblical principles. Well, they say, the Bible says to train up a child in the way he should go, and he will not depart from it. So clearly you didn't train him up in the way that he should go. But, you know, this sort of misapplication of Scripture is so tragic, because instead of weeping and praying with the parents, this Christian is driving the sword of despair even deeper into them by directly implying their lack of godly parenting. This isn't right. Christians with this kind of attitude need to read and study the Bible more carefully, or else it can really be very easily misapplied. You know, that's really something very important for us to remember, Ryan, as you have discussed. And and we can read that. You've talked about several things in Proverbs 25, the heaping of burning coals on someone. Mm-hmm. We When we take it just at the surface, just what it means, we often misquote it. But when we take it in context then we begin to understand. Now, what you can do is go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com and click on the read section because your particular comments are put into words and you can check it out yourself. We have a ton of material there uh, just to help you understand the Bible better. That's the point. So go to the read section. Very good. Thank you, Ryan. Corey? All right. Well, I am continuing to talk about ancient industry and industries that we see reflected in the Bible. Uh, So on today's program, we're going to be taking a look at metallurgy or um, the metal industry in the ancient world. But we're specifically going to be focusing in on copper because metallurgy just in general is a very, very large topic. See, human industry is always, it still is, and it always was driven by need or demand for a certain product for a certain industry. Metallurgy is no different. So let's focus in on ancient copper. From remaining holes that dot the copper-rich cliffs and valleys of modern Israel and Jordan, it's been known for generations that ancient people mined for copper. But just how old these mine shafts were was anyone's guess. Thanks to excavations in the last half of the 20th century, we now know quite a bit about the ancient copper mining process, and it was impressive. From the most ancient of times, three different types of mining for copper ore was employed. A copper pit minefield kept workers on the surface, digging wide, shallow pits at the base of hills. Here, they would find copper from eroded ore. Shaft and gallery mines used deep vertical shafts to find copper veins. Then galleries would be dug out in different directions. Once the copper was exhausted, the shaft would be deepened to a new level and more galleries made. Room and pillar mining dug horizontally into cliffsides. Beginning in natural caves, the miners would cut galleries in different directions following veins of copper. As they dug, they would leave pillars of rock to support the rooms. All three of these methods have been used from very ancient times, at least since the so-called Early Bronze Age. From then until well into the Roman period, the tools of the mining trade stayed the same. Chisels, hammers, baskets, and rope. However, an earlier and later type of copper smelting furnace has been identified. The earlier, more simplistic furnace was built in an area with good ventilation to stoke its fire. A simple bowl shape was dug in the ground and then crushed copper ore was fired and melted inside. The copper would sink to the bottom. 
Once cooled, the furnace was broken into and the mixture broken up to remove the copper from its slag. This copper has been tested to have been 97 to 99% pure. The slightly more complex method is more efficient but yields less pure copper. The hole in the ground was lined with clay and a clay tube allowed air to be pumped in with bellows. There was also a hole in the side of the furnace to allow melted slag to drain out. The copper itself was lifted out using an inserted rod. Then the still warm furnace could be reused right away. So there we go, just a brief intro into the very vast topic of metallurgy uh, in ancient Israel and in the ancient world. Now, obviously, many, many metals spoken of in the Bible, uh, but yeah, copper is one of them, and it's always really interesting to look into. You know, in 1991, when I went to Israel for the first time, this before all the walls were built yeah. and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, we went to Timna Park and, and that was exciting because we were over there six weeks. And the idea was to to feel the just us, just the TV. Six crew. weeks sounds like a good amount of time. Oh, that sounds nice. And we drive by and, and we said, well, Jim said to me, Jim Canelon was with me. He said, let's stop over here. That's where Solomon's copper mines are. Right, right. And I said, really? And uh, he said, well, but some people teach that Solomon used to mine here. We don't right. have any proof of that. So I'm looking at it and there's these big tall pillars. And a lot of people know what I'm talking about, where Solomon's mine. Yeah, they probably saw some images on the And image. then after we saw it and I thought about it and all that, then we get back in the car and Jim says, actually, he probably never mined here. <laughs> but someone did. Yes, someone, someone did. did. <laughs> Copper was pulled from this location. In fact, it was. Uh, but there's a lot of sites that uh, are true and a lot of sites that are not true. Well, you know, yeah. tourism is an industry, just like any other industry, and it's driven by demand. And I, I think what's really interesting is that is is that no matter where you go in, in you know, the ancient Near East, whether it's Israel or Turkey or whatever country that you're visiting, you are, when you go to an archaeological site, you are seeing an actual archaeological site, uh, but it always pays to do a little bit of research uh, before you go. When you know that you're going, do a little bit of research before and see what scholarship has learned or uncovered, because uh, it might be a little bit different than the, that's, uh, that's the, really good. That's, a good, that's good advice. That's good advice. Excellent. Very good. All right, Janice. Yes. Well, my segment today is called Made in Design for Duty, and you heard Rod right off the top, Made in Design for Duty, mad. Now, when we did our church program years ago here in Orangeville, we had a very large uh, population of kids, anywhere from eight all the way up to 16, and they would join us on a Friday night, and we called it MAD. Now, Mothers Against Drunk Driving was also a group that is still very popular now, so we couldn't publicize our name, M-A-D-D, but it did stand for Made and Designed for Duty, and what we always wanted children to know was that they were never an accident, that they are created and designed for a purpose by God. And that means you as well. And it doesn't matter if you're one or if you're 101, you are God's child and you were thought of and known by God before you were even formed in your mother's womb. We know that from the word of God. So know that today, somebody out there doesn't feel like they are designed for duty or have any purpose, but I'm telling you, in Jesus Christ, you absolutely do. So made and designed for duty. This chapter of Ecclesiastes chapter six, to me, it feels like Solomon is saying, you know, rich or poor, uh, one color of skin uh, applied to another color of skin, one culture over another, ultimately, what does it matter? You know, God is the great 
equalizer of people. God is the great equalizer of people. And it is God who has created you, who has designed you for a purpose. And he has a calling on your life. Um, Solomon makes a statement starting in verse 10. Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man. And he cannot contend with him, capital M meaning God, he cannot contend with God who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? Then he asks this question. For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? For who knows what is good for a man in life? That is the giver of life. He knows. He knows the answer to your questions. He has your future in his hands. If you're troubled, if you don't know what your purpose is, if you don't know what your calling is, make yourself available to the Lord Jesus Christ. Get into his word. Pray with him daily. The desires of your hearts will change as your heart seeks after God. And things that you questioned before will be answered. It may not happen in your timing, It may not even be the answer that you were looking for. But as God works and changes us, he will use you and he will speak with you and he will help you along the way. Now, Rod, I don't know if I'm getting my point across here. You are. Help. (laughs) No, no, you are. I think, you know, I think it's important to remember that all of us are designed for duty. The question is this. Do we understand our eternal purpose? Because eternal life begins when we come to know Jesus Christ. When we come to know Jesus Christ, we feel like, well, when we die, we'll begin our eternal life. No, actually, that's not true. You become understanding of your eternity when Christ comes into your life and the Holy Spirit begins to move in you. And you've got to, the Bible is really critical because you've got to open yourself up to the words of the Holy Spirit in order to allow him to speak to you. And your life expands as it would never have expanded before. Because then you begin to apply it, right? You Absolutely. can't just read it. It has to get into your heart. And then you and, and you then you apply it to your actions, your reactions, your life. And you know what happens? You see the Holy Spirit work. Today, I want to remind you that from 3.30 to 4.30, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we have a live prayer meeting on Facebook, YouTube, and of course, Bible Discovery TV. Join us and uh, we'll pray for you live if we can get to you and all of that. Please join us. It's very, very important. 
Right now, let's pray and, and let's pray this way and say, Lord, help us today to listen, listen, really listen to the power of your Holy Spirit.